Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Is that why you hit your wife? Withdrawn. Is that why you drink and pop pills? Withdrawn. Are you a virgin? Withdrawn. Says here you uh, robbed a hospital. Why'd you do that? Yeah, I'm not guilty. That's not what the other lawyer said. Actually, I was going to stay in my office tonight and work on my law blog. Of course, the blah, 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 blog. <laughs> wow, you, sir, are a mouthful. The jury is instructed to disregard its own testimony. Your Honor, the prosecution rests. Welcome to Opening Arguments, the podcast that pairs an inquisitive interviewer with a real-life lawyer. This podcast is sponsored by the law offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Hello and welcome to Opening Arguments. This is episode 120. Nice even number there. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm great, Thomas. How are you? I'm doing okay. So I understand we've got an interview today. Yeah, uh, we want to welcome on uh, to the Opening Arguments team, uh, Natalie Newell. A lot of uh, folks have already met her in the Opening Arguments Facebook community, and she is a podcast host in her own right. Uh, she is also the producer of a crowdfunded film called Science Moms and is an activist for science. And um, we're going to talk about all kinds of fantastic science and legal issues, including GMO labeling. It's it's going to be great. Awesome. Well, with that said, I guess let's get on over to your interview with Natalie. So I am really, really excited to have Natalie Newell on the show. Natalie, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Really excited <laughs> to be here. Yeah, no, this is this is going to be great. Um, I, I really want to get into and discuss uh, your movie project, the way that overlaps with the law. But first, uh, I, I do have a little bit of housekeeping. All right. <laughs> this is my least favorite segment on the show. And I, I have you on as a witness that uh, it is I, I am I am owning up. This is the dreaded uh, Andrew was wrong segment. I'm asking you if you know the difference between right and wrong. I discovered at a very early age that if I talk long enough, I could make anything right or wrong. So either I'm God or truth is relative. And in either case, Booyah. Oh, interesting. It's just the average person has a much harder time saying booyah to moral relativism. I'm going to start off with the with the one that I, I'm really happy about being wrong about. And that is in episode 117, we talked about the 
the Jane Doe versus Trump case, the uh, 17-year-old uh, young woman who was being held in a detention center uh, as uh, a, a woman here outside of legal status and then was subjected to, you know, being dragged in Texas and was subjected to being dragged off to one of these crisis mm-hmm. pregnancy centers and denied the right to an abortion. So really, really good news that I believe one or two days after the decision came down on, on Wednesday, October 25th, Jane Doe was able to uh, to get to a, a medical facility and and got her abortion. Um, so super excited about that. Was not wrong about that one. That was uh, uh, just uh, just a happy update. Uh, and she released a statement that said, my name is not Jane Doe, but I am a Jane Doe. I'm a 17-year-old girl that came to this country to make a better life for myself. My journey wasn't easy, but I came here with hope in my heart that I could build a life to be proud of. I dream about studying, becoming a nurse, and one day working with the elderly. When I was detained, I was placed in a shelter for children. For children, it was there I was told I was pregnant. I knew immediately what was best for me then, as I do now, that I'm not ready to be a parent. Uh, so happy, happy ending to that to that story for for Jane Doe. And uh, the 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 question that I received was, does this in any way moot out the decision? It doesn't. Right, the decision is still valid, binding. It's an en banc decision of the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which is. Uh, the one step below the Supreme Court. And so it's uh, it's a good decision that will have a significant precedential effect going forward. And um, so so that's all good. Um, I got a I got an email from from a patron named Mad, from Maggie Winicky uh, because I offhandedly referred to uh, Texas's uh, restrictive abortion laws as following the framework set forth by the Supreme Court in uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, right, which replaced the trimester approach with a viability, pre-viability, post-viability approach. And essentially what the Supreme Court said was pre-viability states cannot place an undue burden on a woman's right to an abortion. Post-viability states can ban abortion. And Texas bans abortion after 20 weeks. Uh, Maggie wrote me to tell me that no fetus has been born alive at 20 weeks, which is true. Mm-hmm. So it the the record there are a couple different sources that are right around 22 weeks uh which is you know incredibly dangerous and you know re- requires uh heroic life-saving measures. Nothing nothing at at the at the 20 week mark, but uh but the the courts have presumptively upheld Texas's 20 week restriction, you know, which which just sort of goes to show you, you know, the way that the strategy on that side of the political aisle uh, has developed. So it, I didn't mean to suggest that that was medically viable, but it is uh, where the law has un- enabled states to to push that back as early as possible, and you know, and states and act, you know, uh, uh, pro life uh, and anti choice activists in uh, red states are continuing to push to uh, to push back that time even more so, you know, as as part of their uh, run out the clock strategy. So, first first correction was definitely wrong on that. Uh, second one, this is this is kind of a big one. <laughs> And these are a couple of corrections from our friend, uh, Professor Randall Eliason, former prosecutor, on our coverage of the Manafort indictment, Papadopoulos plea. So really, really quickly, uh, number one, uh, I said twice that the conspiracy to defraud the U.S., 18 U.S.C. 371, carries a 20-year penalty. It's only a five-year penalty. I was, I was wrong. 
Number two, more, far more importantly, and this is uh, th- this is really the reason I'm doing the segment. I, I said that you don't need to impanel a grand jury to to indict someone. That that's true as a matter of state practice, but you you do need to impanel a grand jury to indict someone for a federal offense, uh, a federal felony. Uh, that's a guarantee provided by the Fifth Amendment. I knew that, and I just I just misspoke. So <laughs> gotta own up to that one. Third. Boy, this this really goes on, uh, and I think this is this is much more characterization. Randall tells us that uh, the uh, foreign bank accounts record statute uh, carries a uh, a ten year felony, so that they are indeed a uh, a serious uh, crime. I certainly didn't mean to suggest that the record keeping wasn't a serious offense. What I meant to suggest was that there there's not a lot that would connect the 2012 record keeping directly to the Trump campaign, right? I mean, it, it establishes the connection between Manafort uh, and the government of Ukraine, the, the pro-Russian party that then assumed uh, power in Ukraine. Uh, didn't mean to suggest those were not serious offenses. They are very, very serious offenses. But if that, if that uh, came across the wrong way, happy, as long as I'm doing a mea culpa, I'm happy to, uh, to dig in. And then finally, because there's more. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's only this one more. And that is I uh, suggested offhandedly that uh, Papadopoulos could have been charged for failure to disclose under the uh, Foreign Agents Registration Act. And Randall tells us that uh, taking a single meeting with the Russians uh, would not rise to the level of of a crime under FAR. It only applies when you are providing lobbying or PR services in the U.S. That's true. I don't uh, if I had said a single meeting qualifies. I certainly hadn't intended to, but uh, but there we go. That's that's my full and complete disclosure, and uh, and now we can wrap up my least favorite segment on the show. <laughs> thank you for being there, and thank you for uh, for not uh, overly making fun of me on on that. No, one. you know what it it happens, right? We're we're all wrong, and and we admit when we're wrong, and that's just part of of doing this whole thing, right? So there you go, you did it. I, be- I believe in that. So, um, but now I want to get into the main segment. Uh, why, why I brought you here. I am really, really excited. I, I have seen, uh, your documentary science moms mm-hmm. and, and I want to, I want to talk about it and I want to talk about the legal issues that, that are in it. So yeah. I mean, why don't we, why don't we just start? Why don't you tell everybody sort of how the project came to be and, uh, we'll take it from there. Okay. So Yes, I made this short documentary called Science Moms, and this came about, oh man, I mean, I guess really the idea came about while I was feeding a small child in the middle of the night a couple years ago. <laughs> um, as, as all, This is how all good ideas or ideas start, right? You're just up at night and something comes to you. Um, yeah. I was, so I was up feeding my, my now almost three-year-old son, Zeke. And, you know, looking at my phone at two in the morning, as one does when you're like, you know, I need to stay awake for a little longer. And I happened upon one of the few parenting blogs that I liked to read, which was called Grounded Parents, um, part of like the skeptic network of blogs. Mm. And, um, and I see this open letter to celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow and Sarah Michelle Gellar and all these celebrities who were big advocates of the Just Label It campaign, you know, for GMOs, like we need to label everything. But then I see this letter by scientist and science communicator moms, and they hashtagged it moms for GMOs. and, And I read this and 
it's this breath of fresh air because <laughs> as a parent, you're inundated with, you know, here's here are all of the scary things out in the world, whether it's GMOs or vaccines or, you know, modern medicine being somehow not okay. Right. You're you're given all of this information to just, so to see something that runs counter to that, something that says, "Hey, let's talk facts, let's talk evidence, let's talk scientific consensus and try to make our decisions based on that." It struck me as this really amazing little blog post, open letter that I, you know, happened upon at a really weird time of day. And um I thought about it and I this it just kept coming back to me this blog post that I read. And I did a little, you know, just a little searching online to see if there were any videos or any short films or anything that had this kind of slant to it when it came mm -hmm. to issues of food and health and parenting. Because there are a, there are plenty of sort of anti-GMO or weird food documentaries that, you know, tell you that you should just drink juice and all of life's ailments will be cured. <laughs> like, for real. There's right, one, right. I think it's called... Fat, sick, and nearly dead, and this guy just goes on a juice fast for a really long time. Oh, oh my gosh! Well, I know it's I, yeah. And and I mean, to me, the 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 really interesting thing that that you pointed out that I I hadn't thought about it until you just mentioned is that uniquely that parental dynamic, right? And that mm -hmm. that it because you know when when we come across pseudoscientific claims and you get the and you get sort of the the standard argument from that side of of look we just want to talk about this we just want to fully understand the risks you can evaluate or dismiss those those arguments uh for yourself but there's this kind of uh, there's a there's a cultural aspect of being a parent uh you know particularly uh, a parent today <laughs> uh in the matter of you know well, how how could you possibly, I mean, don't you want to eliminate all the potential risks for your children? Even if this is a really, really small risk, you know, you don't, you don't tolerate any of these kinds of risks for your parents. And there's that sort of, you know, cultural helicopter parenting, you know, what, whatever you yeah. want to call that, you know, that, that philosophy. But, but I, I, I didn't think about how that might play into, you know, where, even folks who are otherwise sort of skeptical or or science minded might you know sort of want to err on the side of well you know what does it hurt to just tell people that you know your baby food has genetically modified organisms in it right yeah and and there is there's so much of that out there and then so for me as a parent i i have two children of my own mm -hmm. and and i sometimes wondered you know am i not worrying enough because you know people were telling me to think twice about right. getting vaccines or they're wondering if I was only buying organic baby food or if I was just going to exclusively breastfeed because, you know, that formula, you know, don't know what's in there or whatever it was. And then to to wonder these things about myself, but then stumble upon a letter written by women who I'm thinking, oh, this is more in line with with how I see the world yeah, and how I see, you know, how I'd like the parenting narrative to go more out there in the world. Um, one based a lot less in in fear mm -hmm. and more in just, you know, evidence. <laughs> and so so for me, it then 
it's, I don't know, gosh, it's a couple years later and it just feels like this thing that has been part of my life for, for this time now where I contacted them and said, hey, you know, I think I want to make a movie about you guys. <laughs> And <laughs> and how and, how did that conversation go, or those conversations go? You know, it was. I, I remember sitting in my favorite coffee shop and writing this email proposal of here's an idea for a short film, which I expected honestly at that time to just be, you know, maybe a five to ten minute thing that I'd put up on YouTube and my mom would watch it and my friends would watch it and I'd just think, okay, that's a thing I did. But you know, I made this proposal, sent it to the women, and they, of course, were yeah, you want to make a movie about us and interview us? Sure. <laughs> because, you know, they have messages that they want to get out. And and from there, it just started, even before I started shooting, um, you know, going to the cities and shooting the interviews, the social media following really started to just grow before, obviously, there was even a final product. Mm -hmm. And it showed me that there were people that wanted this. Parents, moms, dads, you know, even people who don't have children, they want to see this approach to these issues. Yeah, that, that's really heartening to hear. I mean, because, you know, one of the moments in the movie that really struck me was the uh, there's there's a couple of minutes at an anti-GMO rally and counter protest uh, mm -hmm. at the Capitol. And you just get the sense of you know, the, the, there's a handful of of these women uh, who are standing, you know, at a table, and you know, people are walking by screaming, like, "How much is Monsanto paying you?" And and I forget exactly uh, who it was, you know, who who sort of you know leans into the camera and says, "I, I know I, I shouldn't respond back to, it, but I, I just can't help myself," you know. <laughs> yeah, no, that was um that was Jenny, and I was there mm -hmm. that day um uh, at that at that capital um protest uh -huh. and it was it was sort of sad in a sense to see how convinced the other people were that you know Monsanto or GMOs or whatever are are poisoning their children yeah and that they had some personal research that and they said and that's what she said personal research <laughs> that led her to some cure she said she cured illnesses uh, yeah no that I mean that was uh, that was heartbreaking and and uh, you know one of the reasons i i like covering this i mean we uh we talk about this on the show that you know our our political uh beliefs are are out there it's a left of center show uh but you know we like to we like to call out uh you know everyone on both sides and this is an area where you know really the uh the activist left has you know, contributed to a substantial amount of, of misinformation. We can dig into that, but, you know, but it's an area where our side, you know, kind of needs to, to clean house a little bit and, uh, and, and evaluate, you know, some, some things that even, uh, even some of our, you know, most trusted politicians <laughs> may, may not have a great record, uh, you know, when it comes to this. And, and I mean, I think a large part of that, what, sort of got me onto this uh onto this topic uh is the distrust of uh Monsanto the distrust mm -hmm. of of you know multi-billion dollar corporate mega conglomerates and you know and I get that right i mean it's it's yeah. uh i think i i said to you one of the 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 most powerful moments comes near the end when uh, the 
molecular biologist, uh, Layla Kateri, uh, you know, looks into the camera and says, you know, essentially, uh, you know, hey, if you are about, you know, fighting the power structure in big agribusiness and standing up for family farms, you know, I'm I'm with you on that. And that's that's something that, you know, we can be allies on. But, you know, let's not uh, let's not get distracted. Uh, let's not fall into the trap of sort of blaming it on on GMOs, which I, I thought was, you know, really, really helpful to kind of you know, set that that dividing line up like that. Yeah, I like that point being made that biotechnology is not just Monsanto and corporations. <laughs> you know, it's it's a tool. It's not it's not a corporation. And so the fact that this type of tool has potential to make positive global impact, but people are conflating it with the idea of you know, corporate America, it, it's really a, a disservice to the world, I think, because of the misconceptions. And that's why I'm so glad um, in Layla's interview, we did get to talk about that because yeah. she does voice of, you know, something that people are probably thinking about, about that industry corporate connection when it, that's not all that this is. Right, right, and I and I and I and I definitely want us to you know kind of kind of dig into that. But wh- why don't I start with the the political question, right? I'll toss it back to you as a playing the role of skeptical parent, right? All right. What how how could it possibly hurt for us to have a uniform standard that just requires basic labeling on the packages of food that says this product was uh, made using uh, GMO products, right? Why? Oh, I mean, wouldn't, yeah. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. How, how can it hurt? What, do, right, more knowledge right. how, is better. Right. More, more knowledge is better. Um, except that if I'm going to buy food, right? I want to look at the labels and know things that are important about the food, like the nutritional information and basic things about its health or allergens or or things that I would want to know before putting it in my body or my child's, you know, and Mm -hmm. and I'm, and so I want the packaging to just have the necessary labels. Now, all that a label about GMO would say is how an ingredient was bred. Like it doesn't ha- have anything to do with the, I don't know, the actual nutritional value or content of the product. So, so why, why do we need that label? I yeah. mean, they're like the genetic engineering label, and, and this only applies to such a small number of crops. I mean, I think you can count on both hands the number of, of crops that are you know, GMO crops like soy right. and corn and, you know, oh, now there's some pretty cool apples, Arctic apples that don't brown, which is yeah, an amazing yeah. like life hack for parents. But, <laughs> but to say, but to, okay, to go get, um, you know, a, a carton of orange juice made just with oranges, right? And it says non-GMO, it tells me nothing because mm-hmm. there's not even a GMO counterpart. Right, right. Well, and- so it's oh, just, good, it's good. so arbitrary. And yeah. And to me, right, the legal framework in, in which that, t- that takes place is, is, is a complicated one. And this is, we, we struggle with conveying to consumers the relevant amount of information 
in a limited space and in the confines of of the First Amendment, right? Like because commercial speech is in many ways uh, entitled to it's a, it's a different standard for First Amendment protection. But you know, there's there's a reason that you know I can call Wheaties the breakfast of champions, right? Like that's I you know that's that's I have a First Amendment right if I'm uh, is it General Mills or Kellogg? I don't I don't know. I haven't had Wheaties one in of a long, one long of the time. big ones, but. But right, you know, I, I yeah. you know, I can characterize the product in that way, even if, you know, Wheaties is is not really an ideal <laughs> breakfast for anybody to 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 consume. And one of the things that I, I think about that in which that overlaps a lot, uh, in which there is some litigation and the FDA has has gone back and forth on how to regulate this is when you have a and I I'm 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 going to use the word fad here, but I don't necessarily mean it in a in a derogatory way. But when you have a consumer trend that proliferates through an industry, well, all of a sudden you will now see right the bag of gummy bears that you buy in the store will say fat free, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. they'll put and and that's true, right? Because it's a hundred percent sugar. Yeah, <laughs> and, so, that, so it's fat free, right. whatever. So it, maybe it's healthy. Uh, maybe. There's there's no there's no possible way on earth you could make a gummy bear with with fat. I I don't know. I right. I shouldn't. I don't want to have to do an Andrew was wrong <laughs> segment on that one. But like somebody's going to be like, well, I found this gummy bear and it has fat. <laughs> how, how great, but it's how organic. <laughs> An organic like fifty fifty percent gummy bear. Yeah, high fructose corn syrup, fifty percent. Uh, you know. Corn butter. Oil or I don't know butter. how this works. Oh, nice. oh my gosh! The um, grossest food we just created right now. Right. <laughs> I, 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 I don't. I don't have much of a sweet tooth, but every once in a while, I, I will have a Swedish fish. A bizarre. A bizarre love for like this. Those are totally, fat free. I think. So. Yeah. They, oh, they're yeah. fat free. Yeah. They're yeah. again. You know, nine hundred calories per fish, but. Uh, <laughs> But so be it. Um, but yeah, so the the idea, I mean, the, the the in my view, the reason to kind of go down that rabbit hole about fat-free gummy bears is we're not making the decision about labeling something in a vacuum, right? This is not we, there is part of an ongoing debate uh, between consumers and legislators about what goes on a package, and uh, as we're going to see, right, the 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 potential for misinformation it you know can be really really high you know when you're talking about something i mean you know most most people in this country i mean to the extent that they're familiar with warning labels they are familiar with the warning labels on a package of cigarettes right that says this is a carcinogen this will kill you every time you smoke a cigarette it degrades your lungs and i certainly do think that you know the the potential for the false equivalence is there, but but even even if you weren't convinced of that, even if you were convinced that it was going to be, you know, a neutral presentation, um, we we still kind of have this, you know, sort of consumer overload of, you know, how do we get because because the idea, at least in my view anyway, it, it it leaving aside kind of the First Amendment questions from a USDA to consumers perspective what you want is to enable consumers to make the best the, the most informed decision given their limited availability of time to consume information and given the availability heuristics that guide those decisions 
if that makes sense. No, it it does. And it and I think there's been so much misinformation about GMOs, genetic modification, biotechnology in general, that it I don't know that consumers really even understand the labels. So what is so what are some of some of the those uh, uh, aspects of misinformation? Well, I think that that some of it just because of the way it's been presented as, you know, there's the not like, for instance, the non-GMO project is one that um, some companies get verified under to say that they don't have Mm -hmm. GMO ingredients. And it had the products are then stamped with a nice symbol with a butterfly that gives it sort of this you know, it has a little bit of sanctimony, I think, attached to it. Like <laughs> you're like you're doing something better for yourself by buying that food that is without whatever this idea of GMO is. You know, sort of that without yeah. the Franken food type of thing. Right. Going on. So people are I think maybe drawn to that because, you know, fallacies about natural being better. Well somehow I- GMO is unnatural. You know, like that kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And let's, I mean, what is the the current state of, of the science? Is there any relationship between uh, any GMO product and health, disease, illness, you know, safety, anything? I mean, is yeah, there... <laughs> no. Um, I mean, scientific consensus is that genetically modified foods are safe to eat and that they're no different, you know, to somebody's health than non-GMO foods. And, and and why yet, and why is that? Jenny does a great job in the in the movie of explaining that GMOs aren't ingredients that are just scooped into your food. Like you don't have, you know, a carton of yogurt and then they add some GMOs to it. It's GMO is a it's a breeding technique for plants. Yeah. And and so there's that sort of base of misinformation there, but then people see that label that says non-GMO, and those products usually cost a little bit more too. Okay. So uh, what I thought uh, might be worth talking about, uh, sort of getting your opinion on, um, is the 2016 law that passed. It's the National Bioengineered Food Disclosure Standard, 7 USC 1639 at SEC. And judging from the fact that it's a 2016 law that passed, that, you know, sort of by definition means that, uh, you know, it passed a uh, a Republican Congress and was signed by a Democratic president. In my view, this sort of exacerbates the 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 worst problems on both sides for for me, uh, you know, as a science minded liberal. But um, uh, but I'll I'll kind of I'll 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 go over a little bit of what the act does and then we can talk about you know, sort of where, where it might be going from that. So, um, so the article, uh, establishes, uh, a mandatory national standard, uh, and it, and it, uh, contains in section 1639B a mandate to the Secretary of Agriculture to uh, establish a national mandatory bioengineered food disclosure standard with respect to any bioengineered food and any food that may be bioengineered and uh, and then to promulgate those uh, re- those regulations out to the states. Um, and the so two things. Number one, that process it, it it is to be completed by July of 2018, and I have confirmed 
that it is underway. Um, I've, I've read documents at the USDA site. There, there were some articles suggesting that uh, various Trump regulations might, you know, sort of, uh, you know, cut out the teeth or otherwise derail it. But as far as I can tell, Department of Agriculture is moving forward with the mandate, will promulgate that standard. The, the really interesting thing is that is Section 1639I, and that is a federal preemption section. And so that it's going to require a, a little bit of a legal rabbit hole. But, but we've talked about on the show in the past how, in many cases, federal laws can sit on top of state laws, right? So, for example, with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 with Title VII, that's a federal anti-discrimination standard. The states can then are, are you know required to abide by that, uh, but they can also go above and beyond. And we've talked about how uh, 32 states uh, go above and beyond the, the federal standard in protecting, uh, for example, sexual orientation or gender identity in addition to those classes that are recognized as, as protected classes within the act. There's another way in which federal laws can interact with state laws, and that is part of the doctrine of preemption. And basically, when the federal government intends to preempt state law, it works exactly the way that word might lead you to believe, which is to say any state law to the contrary is preempted, is null and void. Um, And they can do this in a variety of ways. They can even preempt uh, there's a there's a doctrine called occupy the field, uh, which again is is rather what it sounds like to say we don't want states to legislate on this at all. So here's how the uh, the, the federal disclosure act interacts with with state laws. It says no state or a political subdivision of a state may directly or indirectly establish under any authority or continue in effect as to any food or seed in interstate commerce any requirement relating to the labeling of whether a food, including food served in a restaurant or similar establishment, or seed is genetically engineered, which shall include such other terms as determined by the Secretary of Agriculture, or was developed or produced using genetic engineering, including any requirement for claims that a food or seed is or contains an ingredient that is or was developed or produced using genetic engineering. Okay, so that's pretty broad language for preemptive purposes, right? It means states can't do anything with respect to creating labeling on a state-by-state basis. Um, and y- y- you might ask why, if if this is, I, and I will tell you that this was a this was a concession to the Republican lawmakers to get them to sign on to the bill. And you might ask yourself, wait, wait a second. I thought the Republicans were the, you know, pro uh, federalist, pro, you know, devolving powers to the state, smaller government party. Why on earth would they want uh, preemption? And and the answer is, um, if you have uh, a that that the reason you want preemption in this case is so they fight the battle once in Congress and not 30 or 40 different times in various state legislatures where uh, typically the targets, right, particularly in, you know, states like Vermont, which had a very robust uh, GMO labeling law. And and again, not one that I would support, uh, but one that was very clearly aimed at 
Monsanto yes, in Vermont, yeah, right? Yeah. So you have this kind of, it's why I thought it was worth going through some of the history because I, I totally get why, you know, folks that are otherwise on, on our side um, feel a little icky. <laughs> um, you know, so for example, uh, on the, the, the day that, uh, I don't know if it was the precise day, but uh, as this bill was going up for a vote, Bernie Sanders tweeted out, the Senate is voting on a very bad piece of Monsanto-backed legislation today. Text GMO to this certain number to oppose it. That was July 6th of 2016. So, you know, yeah. I get I get why folks on our side are sort of leery about, you know, getting into bed with Monsanto. But 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 now, you know, we're kind of left with this we're left with a structure in place. This structure is going to be uniform, right? Across all 50 states. So now you need to figure out, okay, you know, what, in my view anyway, you know, what can, what can we do as a holding action here? What can we do to try and, you know, sort of minimize the, the, the potential uh, harm from, uh, from frightening consumers? And, you know, while at the same time, I have this concern, right? Let me know what you think about it. Um, You talked about the Arctic apples, uh, which is something, uh, I looked at when I was preparing for the show, um, mm-hmm. really, really neat, right? Uh, the, 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 the way in which they are bred, uh, means that they can be sliced and they won't brown. And I think the company is intending to sell them pre-sliced, right? Which would be part of the, you know, the grab, uh, as you walk in the store of, oh, hey, look, like it's, it's pre-sliced and not, you know, pre-sliced because it's been, you know, processed within an inch of its life with uh right. with various Whatever. preservatives yeah yeah <laughs> you know, that like apple like food substance that they <laughs> sell in uh in lunchables yeah yeah so really really cool but the overwhelming majority I mean, and and i mean i think it's i think it's you know 99.9 plus right the, the almost almost all of the gmo industry right now is in underlying crops right corn and soybeans uh, which are then you know used in heavily processed foods and and which are you know kind of part of the and again uh, you know don't take legal advice from this podcast but don't take dietary advice from this podcast right like just don't take advice from the podcast (laughs) at all (laughs) (laughs) but but right like you know we've we've talked about how subsidies for corn in in Iowa have led to the fact that it's cheaper to use high fructose corn syrup in mass you know produced uh, uh, uh products than it is you know to use almost any other ingredient and so it's not a surprise that like the 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 least expensive you know f- food products that are out there that are overwhelmingly consumed by you know the poorest in society tend to be loaded up with stuff that is objectively unhealthy for you regardless of its source right so yeah. i i worry about the i i worry about equating on on our side and and again you, I, I'd love to get your thoughts. I want first and foremost, uh, you know, true scientific information to come out. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, from a political perspective, I would like for that valuable scientific information to serve in aid of consumer farming and sort of direct consumer products like the Arctic Apple, and less in service of making it even easier and cheaper and more accessible for companies, you know, to load up. 
you know, lunchables and 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 whatever with with corn syrup gobs of HFCS. Yeah. Not yeah. because HFCS is inherently evil, but just because having thirty percent sugar in the stuff that my kids eat is 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 bad, right? So, what do you, what do you think about that? Right. So so no, I mean you're absolutely right in terms of where you know where a lot of this a lot of these products end up going, and so that I mean there's an issue as far as just nutrition and healthy eating goes that i mean that's a whole other topic isn't it to to discuss yes, yeah. how to how to best you know ch- just change the narrative around food in general and and how to make healthy food real healthy food accessible to people i mean how cool would it be if the biotech sphere was more like the arctic apple type of thing where you know there are actual products that we can touch and eat at that that's just healthy food but right now yeah i mean the gmo issue definitely does get tied to the idea of things like you know corn syrup and yeah. and unhealthy food products and all of that and i and sometimes i wonder if that has anything to do also with just the the idea that that people are kind of afraid of gmo foods Maybe, I don't know, it's sometimes I just like to have a little bit of hope in things that maybe something like this awesome, you know, apple that doesn't that doesn't brown when you slice it for your kid's lunch, like maybe that kind of thing can contribute to making a more positive impact in the idea of biotechnology. I mean, here, yeah, yeah it's it's definitely something that is used for, you know, it's just it's soy and corn and sugar beets and that kind of thing. But when you think about the impact of biotech crops in developing countries, like Uganda has a banana um, biotech banana crop that could really help people with, you know, just issues of hunger, you know, mm, like yeah, yeah. there, there's a lot, a lot of different utilizations of this technology in other places, as opposed to here in the U S like, I feel like our, mm. Our issues, um, yeah, definitely go back to things like healthy eating and the conflation of corporations and biotechnology and all of that stuff. But sometimes I worry, too, if our sort of demonization of this technology does have more far-reaching effects where people look at it. It's like, you know, GMO is just universally bad and then it doesn't it doesn't get utilized to, you know, for positive things in other places. But but I think there's a lot of conversations that kind of happen around this issue at the same time. And and yeah, I think that for sure the issue of what we are putting in our food, GMO or not, because I mean, man, I go to the grocery store and just because something is, you know, organic, it's like, well, they're essentially Pop-Tarts, but they're organic <laughs> or, or things that or things that say that they don't have sugar, but you know, they use honey or some other kind of sweetener. It's, we've, I think we don't really know what we're doing with food. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think that's right. I think you make a really excellent point about, you know, sort of the, the global food market and the way that, you know, uh, uh, American consumer habits, legislative, uh, 
enforcement can have, you know, really unintended uh, consequences around the world where, you know, these these issues can be, uh, you know, the, the, the problems are, you know, far more acute, uh, you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, fighting, uh, you know, incredibly high levels of starvation and malnutrition. And, and that's a that's a really, really excellent point. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, we so we can be here and we can talk about, you know, the idea of what words we want on our packages. You know, we have the luxury of going to the grocery store and we have this safe and affordable food supply and we get to choose between non-GMO and GMO or organic or conventional or whatever, you know, tons and tons of products. And that's a pretty like first world luxury that we're even having this conversation about what words are going to go on our package. Yeah. And and we're talking about breeding techniques that, you know, have been around for decades and with with scientific consensus, you know, showing that there's no evidence of of harm from these kind of products and we're but the debate i think gives it credence you know it says to an onlooker in say a developing nation hey maybe there is some validity to this being dangerous yeah you know yeah. and i'm sorry to bring it to that like bigger level mm-hmm. but i think that that's kind of where i go with all of this that there's sort of this bigger i don't know kind of social justice issue to it mm-hmm. because i i view you know food security and all of that as as part of that equation and and it's just the fact that this is a that this is a conversation that we have the privilege of having here is is i think just worth noting in all yes i totally agree with that i i think it's i think it's worth pointing out sort of two more legal aspects the the first is that uh the law does set down certain requirements certain guidelines that the uh secretary of agriculture has to use and and there's one that's really interesting that i i want to get your your input on because i think it it dovetails with what you've just described uh, so the requirements are uh, that the regulation promulgated by the Secretary of Agriculture shall, A, prohibit a food derived from an animal uh, to be considered a bioengineered food solely because the animal consumed feed produced from containing or consisting of a bioengineered substance. So that's uh, the sap de Monsanto, right? Because so many of of our cattle feed uh, comes from uh, so much of our, of our cattle feed comes from uh, bioengineered uh, crops like uh, yeah. like corn. B determine the amounts of a bioengineered substance that must be present in food as appropriate for the food to be okay. Well, that's pretty normal. C establish a process for requesting and granting a determination by the secretary regarding other factors and conditions under which a food is considered a bioengineered food. That's a that's a really sensible. I mean, leaving aside the the overarching notion of whether any of this is necessary, that kind of a catch all provision in regulations is pretty typical to say yes, we're going to adjust to changing conditions on the fly. But 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 then. Here we go with uh, with D. Require that the form of food disclosure under this section be text, symbol, or electronic or digital link, but excluding internet website uniform resource locators not embedded in the link with the disclosure option to be selected by the food manufacturer. So that means, and we've already gotten some indication, that the warning could be in the form of a QR code uh, that you have to go to the effort of of scanning on the and it doesn't 
you know, instantly convey any kind of, of information to you. You know, it's just, uh, it's just one of those QR codes on the, on the package of the food. And, and obviously, I mean, sort of the, the first thing that, that occurred to me with respect to that is, you know, well, that's, I mean, if, if you are thinking that this is information that consumers need to have, you have now taken that information out of the hands of the poorest consumers who are not likely to be shopping with their, you know, expensive Apple smartphones. And it, it, it and that, that was, it was just kind of a, kind of a shocking bit to find sort of buried away in section you know, what is this? 1639B, subsection B, subsection 2, subsection big D, right? Like it is, yeah. you know. Just down there somewhere in the weeds, kind of just uh, it, hiding out and. Yeah. And that, and that's the game, right? Like it, it doesn't, people are envisioning, um, you know, that this is, you know, that it's going to say this product contains you know, food that has been prepared, uh, you know, uh, GMO free or GMO using or whatever, but, uh, but, it, but it could just be a, a QR code from the way I read this. So now, right. Throw all that into the soup. Is it a good thing because fewer people are likely to be misled by the warning? Is it a bad thing because it's, you know, sort of differentially passing information onto consumers? Is it a bad thing because, you know, it's it's going to re-spark sort of the debate about what I, I mean. I don't uh, I I don't know. So I'm curious about your thoughts. I, I know, and I'm and I'm sitting here kind of trying to process like two. If okay, so if you really think that information is super necessary to be there, right? Like um, warning labels on cigarettes or mm-hmm. whatever are there. You it's there, and it you don't have to put a you know do a QR code on your cigarette package, right? Right. Because the that absolutely necessary information is on there already. It makes me just kind of wonder too, do they even believe that this is necessary information if it's something that they're making people find? Like yeah. do you know what I mean? like it just first of all, you're right, as far as the um there are certain consumers that are just never gonna get this info because they don't have access to it because they're they're not shopping with the smartphones. I just I just don't really understand this method. I mean, I guess it is for the people who are just desiring this the most because maybe, I mean, these have probably been some of the loudest voices. The anti-GMO and sort of just label it people are the the loud ones in this. And I'm going to stereotype for a second and say maybe are the ones that are going with their smartphones ready to QR um, <laughs> yeah, to, code to, scan. I'm just going to gonna, Whole Foods where I do a lot of my shopping. They're, yeah, exactly. they're prob- you know, like maybe maybe that is the consumer that this is made for and okay. But I also think that a bigger issue with all of the the labels and education about what's in our food is to actually educate people about what's in our food. I mean, the the narrative around all of this is, I think, a little bit shaky and dodgy and people don't really know what, you know, GMO or non-GMO means. I think they just equate it with good and bad. And so if there could be better consumer education, I don't even know where that starts. I don't <laughs> know if that's, is that companies, is that government, is that who is, I mean, I guess that's why I made a movie. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, really. That's a, that's a good place to start. That's, <laughs> it's, it's a place, but to say, you know, to people, you don't necessarily need to with fear, grab your smartphone and scan that QR code. And if it comes up that there's genetically engineered ingredients, like you don't need to put that product back on the shelf. 
Yeah, well, that dovetails with the second legal issue that that I was going to point out, which is another really, really hard uh, question. <laughs> or I don't know, it, it's a hard question for me. Maybe you have an easy answer to it. In May, uh, May of this year, when we reached a budget deal to keep the government funded through um, the, I think only through the end of September, uh, I think it was the last, uh, the last budget deal, but um, uh, one of the few pieces of legislation that, you know, made it out of uh, Congress, um, that appropriations bill uh, contained within it uh, a $3 million provision. Now, $3 million is nothing, right? Nothing, um, yeah. But it's a $3 million provision that is allocated to, quote, consumer outreach and education regarding agricultural biotechnology. Um, that was uh, at, that was, that was promoted at the request of Monsanto and other large agribusiness, right? And uh, as you might as you might imagine, the voices raged in in uh, in outrage against it. Again, came from our side of the spectrum. So here's House Representative Nita Lowy from New York. It is not the responsibility of the FDA to mount a government-controlled propaganda campaign to convince the American public that genetically modified foods are safe. I the can't. FBI... Like, I'm... Oh, my God. <laughs> I, it's just so bad. The FDA has to regulate the safety of our food supply and medical devices. They, sh they are not, nor should they be, in the pro-industry advertising business. So... Uh, so that, you know, there's, how about, how about that little, uh, little bomb rolled into the room? Because I, I, it, it's, I, like I said, I think it's a tough question, right? It, on the one hand, uh, you know, it presumably they are going to, uh, the, the campaign is going to release, uh, safe information. They're going to release, uh, scientifically valid information at a time in which, you know, there is, um, work on labeling that is going to come down that, that might have the effects that we've talked about it. On the other hand, you know, it's $3 million in tax revenues being used to, uh, to prop up giant agribusiness. So what, what are your thoughts? <laughs> oh man. I, I think that it's odd. Like, I don't even know. I don't even know where to go with that because just the <laughs> word, the word propaganda being mm -hmm. put forth is, I mean, Hey, anybody hears that word and they automatically think, well, I'm, I'm not for that because propaganda and right. industry and all of that. But again, I don't know how to how to change it to where we don't automatically think biotech, genetically engineered foods and go right to corporate Monsanto, all of that. And and I do understand, like, obviously, companies like Monsanto are going to want to put their money or something into spreading po more positive word about biotech. Yeah. Yep. So it's, I mean, they're screwed either way, aren't they? <laughs> well, and that, they, and that they is, are. yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the argument weirdly that's being made by the other side. Again, you, you know, you would think that the, you know, pro free market side of, of the equation, uh, would, would, uh, face the sort of obvious reality. So for example, this is a quote I found from Andy Kimbrell, who's director of the center for food safety, um, 
uh, which is an anti-GMO yeah, organization. Yeah. I know you know it. Uh, but but you know what he says is, so yes, the, the Labeling Act gives Monsanto a marketing problem, but Monsanto has plenty of money to advocate for GMOs. Why do we need to use taxpayer dollars? And, you know, usually that's the kind of argument you expect from uh, our Republican friends in Congress of, hey, you know, you want to you want to undertake an advertising campaign to convince the public that uh, that GMOs are safe. Go, you know, go for it. It's a free country. Uh, you've got a right to, to do that. But but spend your own money. Don't don't spend the taxpayer money. I mean, a, a, again, at the end of the day, a, a three million dollar national ad campaign is uh, you know, it has has zero effect on either your pocketbook or on public perception. Uh, but I thought I thought that was just an interesting, uh, uh, you know, little little dilemma to to put out there as as we kind of navigate these uh, these tricky waters in the intersection between uh, good science and good politics. No, it is. It's it's tricky and it's divisive. And and yeah, I guess all that I could encourage is for people to look at it as as a useful technology and not just this evil corporation. Yeah. You know, well, and and start there. Yeah. No, I totally agree and 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 again, I mean you're you you're being modest but um your movie is an amazing place to start. And and I should add we've taken up the whole hour here talking about GMOs and we could go for another hour. You know, we could talk about uh, the anti-vax craze, which is another area where our side of the aisle really needs to clean itself up. It's a, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic movie. If, if folks are interested in showing that, you know, in arranging for a showing uh, of that movie before, before pro-science groups, before skeptics groups, that sort of thing, what, what can they do? Yeah. So uh, I have a website for the film and they can go to www.sciencemomsdoc.com and all of the info is there. You can download the movie from there. There's a press kit section that has all of my contact info, um, some articles, about us and the science moms and all information about how to screen it. And you can also obviously find a science moms page on Facebook. Yeah. Just all over the internet. But I, I am really excited to now have it out there in the world. It's been seen at a couple conferences to, you know, really positive reviews because obviously preaching to the choir of skeptics. But um, I'm, I'm excited to hopefully have it start some conversations like the conversation we had here just to, you know, to go beyond the the common thoughts about things like GMOs and vaccines and all of that and dig a little deeper. Yeah. And I, I mean, to, to me, and maybe I maybe I should have led with this. We, you know, since we were coming at this from a, a position of agreement on the science, you know, I wanted us to to talk about some of the other issues. I, I think it is striking that all of the evidence on the other side of, you know, a, a what we would call, you know, the anti-GMO side, the anti-vax side, that it the, the 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 I shouldn't say all of the evidence. I I don't want to have to do an Andrew was wrong on that. But but the primary argument you will see are opinion polls, right? Anti-GMO advocates, what they tout is, you know, ninety-four percent of American consumers want the product labeled. Well, you know, that's not it it in my view, 
you know, when, when you're trying to resolve a scientific question in a, an area where you're conveying a limited sphere of information and we, we know that, that there is misinformation, like, you know, an opinion poll doesn't tell you anything, right? It, it, it tells you that people are afraid of things. Well, the question we should be asking is, you know, should you be afraid of it? And that, that doesn't, that doesn't help answer the question. So, you know, I, it, it, uh, maybe if, uh, if I, if I had had less of an exposure to the science we could have, we could have gone through for, for those, uh, OA listeners who, who may not be sold. But, uh, but I guess for, for them, I would say go to, go to the website, go to www.sciencemomsdoc.com. That's sciencemomsdoc.com and, uh, and arrange to, to get the movie shown because it's a, uh, it's, it's really good. I I really enjoy it. It's really well done. You keep calling it a short film. I mean, you know, it's, it's 30 minutes, right? We're not talking it about, is. uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a clear labor of love on your, on your part. And, um, Thank you. and I really, uh, I really want, uh, I really want folks to to get out there and and see this because, uh, uh, like you said, I think it it's I, I think understanding where we're coming from is the key to having an informed discussion about these issues and uh, and this it's a great great way to start. Thank you so much. Well, and thank you for coming on the show. I'm I'm really excited we got a chance to to sit down and and talk about this and you know share. We have these conversations offline and uh, and being able I think to to share them with the listeners was. Uh, is is going to be fun. So yeah, this has been great, and you'll be on my show eventually. So uh, absolutely, I, think I, I put it on the calendar. So nice, you know, it'll nice. happen. Well, I I can't wait. And why don't I don't think we've plugged your show yet. So uh, oh. so let's do that. Okay, so I also um, co-host the Science Enthusiast podcast because I need another thing to. Because <laughs> <laughs> we all do. We're we all, all just, do. You know, we all need yeah. all the things. So. Too much time yeah. on our hands. Yes. So. Well, Natalie, thank thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you to our Hall of Fame patrons. Thank you, Heather Loveridge, Sakashite Fukusumi, Kaylee Reiser. Chrissy offers job coaching at blueprintgreen.us. Use code OA17 and save. Violet Page Hall. And finally, thank you, thank you, thank you to the Grand Duke Nile, Danny Baker at Combat Nonsense, Greg Sullivan, C6 Sarah, Sammy, Roger Metcalf and the Hired Goons, Rhonda the Dork, Rebecca Smelzer, our first patron, Dan Irizari, that's true, Adopt a Homeless Pet and Oppose Declawing and Ear Docking, The Wayward Willis Podcast, Philip Stromberg, Tricicular Manslaughter, CampQuest.org, 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 Squick Thinger, all aboard Thomas Smith's Purge Boat. That's <laughs> funny every time I read it. Matthew Vernon, POTUS supports fake news, Malika Chandler, Jesse Studd is my favorite lawyer, Andrew's a close second, Jaga, the co-host of the Shifty Bastards Transformation Podcast, and Keith Davies. Thank you all so much for being our Hall of Fame patrons. Absolutely. And thank you to Jessica Wilson, Jeffrey Maynard, Jared Middlegoon, Manager Teets, Jim Grove, Dave, co-founder of the Florida chapter of Thomas's Goon Squad, Nichols, Ian and Ali, manager of all our tentacles. Matt Dillahoney ate Thomas's feet with his goatee. It's true. P is for purge. That's good enough for me. Eli Bosnick, Sam Denau, Soggy Pants, Adam Lenda, Aaron Grady, Frederick Alstromer. Cody Bond, ReasonableRiskPodcast.com, times three, say it, Thomas, say it. <laughs> Mitchell, <laughs> stop breaking the law, asshole. Eric Johnson, Dan Dan the Socialist Man, Michael Rops, Dr. Nick Riviera, MD, you've tried the best, now try the rest. Zabby, Carl Zipples, Overton Window Cleaning Company, 
and Conrad Michaels. Thank you guys so much. Hope you enjoyed all that bonus content last week. Look forward to another uh, exciting rendition of Lot Awful Movies this month and all that. Thanks for making the show happen. Oh, no associate of this firm has ever failed the bar exam. No kidding. And it is time for our co-favorite. Still, I mean, I'm just on such a roll. Is one of my favorite all-time segments. That is Thomas Aces by <laughs> Aces asterisk sixty percent possibly. Uh, the bar exam. What do we got this week? Throw out the Let me have it. Let's do it. Uh, all right, we have a uh, a question on a topic I don't think you have answered in the previous forty-eight questions. Mm, so so uh, I have to rely on my uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my encyclopedic knowledge of the law, not on my past experience. Exactly. So here we go. A furniture dealer sold furniture to a young couple with less than perfect credit. I like the commercial start at this. Uh, they signed a contract that said that if they purchased new items on the account, they would not own the old purchases until mm -hmm. the new ones were paid in full. That provision was in fine print on the reverse side of the papers. When the husband lost his job, they had by that time paid for everything purchased on the account except for one chair bought a few weeks earlier. The store sued, trying to repossess all the furniture ever sold wow. to the couple. Will the couple likely prevail on a defense of unconscionability? Okay, so... Mm. Fact pattern setting up sounds pretty unconscionable. I'm yeah, not, I was to just going one. to say the same thing. Sounds unconscionable uh, to me. <laughs> but uh, but I say that in colloquial terms and not necessarily on the defense of unconscionability. So here you go. Your choices. A, no, because they might be able to find another store to sell them furniture, which proves that there was no lack of bargaining power. Yeah, that's the classical liberal answer. Right. <laughs> B, no, because the store was nice enough to extend credit and the couple should be expected to pay for everything before they own any of it. So that's the uh, libertarian uh, answer. C, yes, because any time a seller puts terms in fine print, it is proof of bad faith and unconscionability. Okay. Or D, yes, because under a combination of factors makes it likely that the court will recognize unconscionability huh. under these circumstances. Well, what a weird set of answers. <laughs> I mean, they all don't really seem great. I mean, the be the best one is D, and that's just a weird wording. A combination of factors makes it likely the court will recognize the unconscionability. I mean, okay, well, in terms of elimination, I'm going to eliminate... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to eliminate A, B, and C <laughs> because right. they're obviously wrong. So I okay, let's well I'll go through them. So because no, because they might be able to find another store, which proves that there was no lack of bargaining power. I don't really think that you that 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 doesn't sound like something that would negate unconscionability. I mean, just because because I'm trying to think of a similar circumstance. Like if unconscionability is not being allowed, and this again, this is my <laughs> just guessing at it. But if it's if it's it's likely going to be like not being allowed to get away with some just horrific crap in a contract because you put it on the back and fine print. Bargaining power to me doesn't really answer that question. You know, it's it just just because there's somewhere else I could go buy something doesn't make it okay for getting away with something unconscionable. It seems to me, and then B. The store was nice enough to extend credit. <laughs> That's just the hardcore, yeah, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps answer. Um, the couple should be expected to pay for everything before they own any of it. That doesn't, there's no legal anything in there. That's just, <laughs> it just seems to, I mean, I guess maybe you could say it's an argument that it's not unconscionable what they did, but I don't, I don't think so. 
That doesn't make any sense. C, because uh, yes, because anytime the seller puts terms in fine print is proof of, proof of bad faith and unconscionability. Well, that's obviously wrong. So if I were going to go for my hardcore, my actual eliminations, I would eliminate A and C and B would be like maybe it. Maybe B could be possibly one of those badly worded answers that ends up being right. But I think I'm going to have to go with D. Yes, because a combination of factors makes it likely that the court will recognize unconscionability. And although that sounds kind of vague and like, oh, it's not a very legally answer. I actually think it's right because the fact that it was fine print, the fact that the the stuff was paid in full and it's a it's a chair that they just bought recently, you know, a few weeks earlier, um, the fact, you know, it just, it, it seems like a combination of things will lead a court to say, no, nah, this is, this is unconscionable. I think I'm going to go with D. All right. And uh, as always, if you'd like to play along with Thomas, uh, you know how to do that by now. All you have to do is take our announcement episodes, either on Twitter or on Facebook, share them out, retweet them out, uh, include hashtag TTTB, your answer, your justification, therefore, and play along with us. We will pick the best answer, the one we like the most, and uh, we will then read that person's name on the air, subjecting them to never ending fame and fortune, fame and fortune, not guaranteed. All right. Well, that's it for our show. Thanks so much much to natalie for coming on uh really interesting interview there andrew and uh we'll have to say i know i i will also have to add about the ttgbe you are traveling so we'll see how that goes in terms of a winner but we'll find a way i'm sure yeah absolutely tttbe finds a way (laughs) like as jeff goldblum said yes yeah exactly exactly. (laughs) all right thanks for listening so much everyone and uh looking forward to talking to you next week and we'll see if uh, this this bar question it might have thrown me. I mean, it could have been one of those ones where the weird answer is actually the right one. I don't know. So we'll see. But with that said, thanks to patrons. Thanks to listeners. Thanks to Andrew. See you next time. Stop breaking the law, asshole! This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Thomas. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash law. If you can't support us financially, it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. Until next time. Podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media LLC. All rights reserved. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.